Welcome to The Hammer, where we hit the nail on the head with insights from the world of Canadian renovation and custom home contracting. Now here's your host, the editor of Canadian Contractor Magazine, Patrick Flannery. Hi everyone, glad to have you back with me. Today we spoke with Jim Mandeville from First On Site. First On Site is a uh, disaster restoration and remediation uh, company. They coordinate efforts to uh, uh, clean up after disasters such as floods and fires and uh, uh, I suppose earthquakes. Uh, Jim has done some of that in the past. Um, Jim and I had a, a very interesting conversation about the special challenges for contractors in, uh, in coming in to help with that sort of work, uh, to rebuild and, uh, and to get involved with that. First on site is involved with coordinating all those efforts. So Jim knows a lot about the, the various regulations and the different hazards and things to be aware of when you're doing this sort of work. Uh, he has some interesting stories about his experiences in the Fort McMurray fires, um, talking a bit about uh, some things you might not expect that are, that are dangerous uh, in flooding situations. Uh, he talks a bit about uh, about what kind of equipment is needed, uh, what contractors need to be uh, aware of when they're going into houses and areas that may have been damaged. Uh, really a, an interesting conversation about some things maybe we don't always think about but might need to if we, uh, if we get uh, involved in this sort of work uh, in the future. So I uh, hope you enjoy my conversation with Jim Mandeville from First On Site. All right, everybody. I'm here with Jim Mandeville from First On Site. Jim, how you doing? Great, thanks, Patrick. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's really neat to have you uh, uh, with us. Um, we're going to talk a bit about uh, disasters and disaster remediation today, and uh, and I I I know that's a it's a it's a big topic in uh, in our industries. Uh, uh, everybody really um, um, gets. Uh, gets sort of, it's terrible to say, but they get opportunities <laughs> when these things happen. Um, and, uh, and, and, but they're also very concerned to help out and, and, and do whatever they can. So Jim, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background and what you're doing for First Onsite? Certainly. So I've uh, been in the restoration business for about 17 years, um, looking after disaster cleanup from the very small scale and residential homes up through very large uh, industrial, uh, commercial, hospitality, and healthcare environments uh, all across North America. So, um, been in a wide variety of, of uh, area-wide catastrophes, everything from hurricanes to wildfires and uh, floods, tornadoes, you name it. Um, certainly been there and, and seen a few of them uh, in different parts of the continent. And tell me a bit about First Onsite. What, what, what do you guys do? What's your involvement in these... Uh disasters? So First On Site is Canada's largest uh, restoration contractor, uh, together with our uh, operations in the United States and beyond. Uh, we look after the restoration of homes and businesses, uh, and again, institutions, etc., after they've had things like fires or floods or uh, any sort of uh, unfortunate incident like that, um, from coast to coast to coast, all the way across. Okay, so when, when, when a disaster happens, um, it, the insurance companies are calling you in, the private owners are calling you in, the governments are calling you in. How does this usually work? Well, definitely all of the above. I mean, um, a very large portion of our business is uh, from large businesses themselves. Um, we have pre-existing relationships with a lot of uh, large companies who count on us to be a part of their emergency response plan. 
So they've done the thinking ahead and they know that, hey, these bad things happen, especially these days. We're going to have a bit of a plan for, you know, if there's a flood in this town or a wildfire in that town, and we'll help participate in that planning and, and we'll do a lot of work directly for them. Uh, then we also, of course, do a lot of work for um, a wide variety of, of insurance carriers across Canada and the United States, um, and as well directly for homeowners and, uh, you know, just people needing help. Wow, you must have seen a lot of wild stuff, and we're going to get into some of that. Um, the um, um, let's let's start big picture first. We 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 hear that um, you know uh, climate change is causing uh, uh, worse disasters, more disasters, uh, uh, more intensity. Uh, I guess more frequent um, uh, wildfires and flooding. I think are are, are sort of the big ones uh, that we or in very, very intense storms. I guess uh, as well. Um, uh, tell me what what. What what are you seeing? Do you do you, do you is there is there more happening than than there used to be? Well, I can tell you that every year I'm busier, um, and that's uh, you know not to toot our own horn. We're doing what we can, but a lot of that's got to do with the climate. So certainly, we're seeing far more uh, regular and intense regional events. So in the past, we might have you know one flood somewhere in eastern Canada in the spring, and maybe one small sort of wildfire event or wind event in Western Canada. And now sometimes we're seeing, you know, four or five, six major events in a year, sometimes concurrently where we could have a large flooding event in Eastern Canada, uh, while at the same time having, you know, widespread wildfire damage in British Columbia, like we did in, uh, in 2017. So uh, it's, you know, to the lay person, I'm not gonna, I'm not a climatologist, obviously, but it certainly seems to be increasing, uh, you know, at a, at a drastic rate. Yeah, that's been my sense too. I, I was working on the um, uh, Wings magazine for a little bit a couple of years ago, uh, and one of their uh, groups of readers are the, uh, you know, the firefighters in BC uh, with the water bombers and stuff like that for the forest fires. And uh, and boy, those guys were worked off their tails. They they, they seem to have more going on uh, every year. They, they were wondering how they were going to, how they were going to keep up with it all. So yeah, it, it seems to be a uh, well, a growing business to not put that kind of a spin on it, but <laughs> it's uh, it's definitely a, it's definitely something that uh, that everybody's going to be uh, going to be heavily involved with. You know, the first thing that comes to my mind, and I think a lot of people's minds when we talk about disasters and things, I guess the most recent really high profile thing was Fort Mac. I mean, you know, you basically had a, a, a whole town burning down, or at least part of it. Um, give me, give me your war story. I, I, I know you were involved. Give me your war story from Fort McMurray and what you saw up there. Certainly. So I was, uh, personally in Fort McMurray about three days after most of the residents evacuated along with a uh, small team of ours, uh, to assist with, uh, some infrastructure issues and, and sort of maintenance of the areas where the firefighters and other first responders were sleeping. So we we're taking care of some air quality stuff and, uh, and, and just sort of providing that extra layer of comfort and security to those guys while they're trying to do their job. Um, I, I've never quite seen anything like it uh, as in this country anyways, as far as a widespread evacuation. It's a pretty eerie feeling to drive through a town of, at the time, 90,000 people and not see another vehicle or another person or even a dog or nothing, just empty. Um, you know, and it was a long time. We were there through the evacuation uh, weeks, um, you know, where we were doing our work and doing what we could to help out. And and then you'd step outside and go back to the RVs we were staying in and it might be raining, burning pine needles that day. So 
Wow. A, uh, yeah, it's a pretty intense thing when you're that close to a big fire. Um, yeah. yeah, it's it's not for everybody. Yeah, and and I, I guess that the smoke must be hard to deal with, right? That seems to me to be the big problem. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's definitely a learning curve, and maybe it helps for our current situation here. But we were needing to you know wear respirators to walk to the restroom, and we're needing to wear respirators you know in the truck if we're going for you know from one end of town to the other. So we spent a lot of time in our respirators, uh, which. You know, now we're all spending a lot of time in masks. So I guess everybody starts to get the feeling now. But at the time, it was a pretty foreign idea that I was going to put my respirator on to get in the truck. So wouldn't doubt it. I wouldn't doubt it. And so, sorry, what what were you what were you mostly involved with doing there? Like, like, obviously, so there's I'm picturing like there's houses burning or I guess they've been mostly put out, you know, by this time. Um, so so and then the people have evacuated. So now what is first on site coming on and, and, and doing at this point? So in the initial phases, uh, we were providing uh, air quality management, uh, you know, through some installation and monitoring of equipment, uh, as well as some temporary power stuff in, in conjunction with some of our partners. And then as we move towards uh, reoccupation of the town, we started with the critical businesses. So we have a lot of existing customers who uh, provide critical functions to the community, banks, grocers, uh, fuel stations, et cetera. So those became the priority in getting those clean. Uh, and getting them back to a point where they could operate, whether that meant they needed temporary power or permanent power reconnection, heavy cleaning and, and you know, some disinfection, because, of course, we had some food that sat there for a month. Um, so we we worked through all those, getting those back up and running so that, you know, there would be facilities available for the townspeople to use once the evacuation order was lifted. Um, talk to me a little bit, Jim, about, uh, about uh, working with... Uh the contractors and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, the, every area is going to have local contractors uh, that are into uh, renovation and, uh, and, and custom home building. Um, those are, those are our readers for sure. Um, and, uh, and, and what's, what's their role? How, how do you get involved with the, with the local guys uh, when, uh, when a disaster hits a community? So when we come into a community after a large disaster, local contractors are an invaluable resource. They know the market, they know the lay of the land, they know where everything is and how to get things that are in short supply. So we're always looking for local contractors to partner with and they can really be a, a big help to us. Um, definitely, uh, you know, custom home builders, uh, even landscapers and roofers, you know, uh, can be a great assistance because they've got available labor that is no longer busy doing the regular job and they've got things like dump trailers and small equipment and they can really be a, a great assistance to a restoration contractor like ourselves. And then once it moves into more of a reconstruction phase, there's always, you know, more than enough opportunity for all the local contractors to uh, get involved with uh, reconstruction, especially on the residential side. There, there is never enough, enough contractors in any of these uh, regional catastrophes to put things back together fast enough for the residents. So. Mm. Now you guys are very experienced with uh, with the disaster scenarios and, and going into uh, 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 damaged buildings, potentially dangerous areas, areas with possibly the ground undermined, uh, things like that. Um, a lot of the a lot of the local contractors won't be. Um, what are the uh, what are the safety considerations there? How how do we how do how do we stay safe when we're trying to help out in a disaster scenario? Well, I mean, definitely safety is a, an enormous priority for us. I mean, as you mentioned, most of the things that we're doing are just inherently dangerous. So we're always looking for the safest way to do it. 
and we're used to looking for those hazards and used to looking for it. So local contractors, everybody wants to help. Everybody wants to rush in there and get things done. But what everybody needs to remember is that that you know, 20 minutes or, or maybe even an hour to really assess a situation before you go walking into it or sending your crews into it, it's going to save somebody's life. And that one hour that you got to that home or that business earlier is not changing when they're going to open again after, a, you know, an area-wide flood where they've had three feet of water in the store. Mm-hmm. Um, so you need to take the time, really assess the situation and assess yourself. Do you really have the qualifications and the experience to be doing this part of the work? Or should you take a step back and call somebody maybe more qualified and get involved with things that you are good at, like putting things back together after the fact? So, um, you know, a little bit of money or a little bit of time is not worth somebody's life. Give me, give me, let's go again, uh, disaster uh, 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 type by type. Um, Biggest safety risk or biggest top two or three safety risks uh, after a fire? Uh, Generally speaking, it's respiratory. So uh, we're always worried about how much smoke we're breathing in. We all know how bad, you know, cigarette smoke is for us. This stuff is not a heck of a lot better. Um, So it's, you know, good quality respiratory protection and respiratory protection discipline is critical. Um, And then if you're in an area that has sustained direct fire damage, uh, where the buildings themselves are actually fire damaged, then you've got real structural concerns. Things can look pretty solid and look pretty secure. People got a real tendency to wander around in them. Yeah, that stuff can fall, you know, a little bit of a breeze or a bit of a rain or something. And I've seen buildings come down. So um, definitely those are the two big ones for a wildfire. Event. Yeah, that's that, that. That was my thought was was that that risk with the fires is is. And I, I, I think a lot of our guys know this, but I mean, that that risk with the fires is the, the place can even look decent on the outside. And 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 what you don't understand is that under underneath everything has just been uh, has just been weakened to an extent and all the fasteners have been have been melted and weakened uh so you know that it's it makes it a, it makes it obviously a dangerous environment um flooding the first thing that comes to my mind is electrical uh uh, uh electrical wires what what uh, would that be the biggest uh, risk there or are there other things yeah i mean definitely electrocution is always our our biggest concern with water damage so making sure that either the entire building or at least the affected area of the building is locked out and tagged out before you're even going near it's number one. And then number two that a lot of people don't think about is sanitary. So that water, especially if it's overland flooding, it's got all kinds of really nasty stuff in it. Guys, you see people all the time running in there and in their boots and shorts and they're in that water up to their knees. You're basically in a big septic tank. So it's entirely possible you're gonna get a really bad bacterial infection you know, people have died from this sort of thing. So um, definitely cleanliness and, and keeping your body away from that water is definitely number two. Gloves, you know, I mean, you wouldn't clean out a septic tank without gloves on. So why are you cleaning up the flood without gloves on? So it's uh, it's a big thing. Do you guys do like the hazmat suits? Do you do like... Yeah, the- uh, our personal protective equipment requirement is, is high already and it gets higher every year. Um, and our guys are in disposable coveralls like that. I would say the majority of the time, uh, especially with a category three water loss like that, where it's contaminated with sewage or, or potentially, you know, animal fecal matter runs across the ground, right? You know, the dog does its thing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's dirty water. So, you know, in, a, in an overland flooding event, our guys would be in rubber boots, disposable coveralls, gloves, 
uh, and full face respirators so that their eyes are protected as well. Because again, if you touch this stuff and then touch your eyes, it's, you know, you're going to get it. So it's, uh, it's a really important topic. Jim, I, 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 I won't be applying for your job anytime soon. That's, a, <laughs> that's a, it's not the, It's not the cleanest thing in the world. No, no, I can imagine you. You want to be very careful with that stuff. How about storms? What uh, what what becomes dangerous there? Down power lines again? I would expect. Yeah, again, electrocution is always a huge a huge hazard, and and uh, access and egress. You know, a lot of times you'll sort of work your way into an area where there's a lot of down trees to uh, you know have a look at a project or start working on a project and then realize, well, you know, we had to get to the hospital right now. You know, we had to, we had to walk across 25 trees in this neighborhood to get back to the truck. So is it really safe for us to be working here right now? Or do we need to, you know, make other arrangements? That's, that's always a concern. And wow. then of course the, the obvious structural concerns as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. When it's it, the house has a tree on it, it may not stay up. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. I love that point that, that, that's something, I wouldn't have thought of, but yeah, that's right. When you're, when you're climbing and climbing and, 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 and you can't get a vehicle in there and you're, 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 you're getting around everything, something bad happens. You're, you're stuck there. Yeah. It's yeah. Listen, if you can't drive yourself there, the ambulance and the fire department can't get there to get you out either. So that's something a lot of guys forget about. Absolutely. Um, so when, when you are, um, I guess I, let, let me let me ask you this: Our guys are our guys are building uh, custom homes, and they're and, and they're and they're renovating houses, right? Have you seen mistakes, or have you seen things that could be done in house design that would make them safer from some of the risks we've been talking about? Are, are, are there things where you've looked at and said, you know, they 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 built a place in this area, and they really should have been more cognizant of this? There, there's a long list. Uh, definitely, we talk about resilient communities and resilient homes a lot in our business. And and what that means, especially in Western Canada, is, is using um, fire smart materials or fire resistant materials. So if you're building houses or renovating houses in a fire zone, you really shouldn't be using combustibles on the outside. You should be looking at things like hardy siding instead of vinyl, um, ember resistant roof vents and ember resistant gable vents and, and uh, soffit vents. Um, uh, fire retardant roofing or, or non-combustible roofing. These things are all really critical. There's a lot of information out there these days about that. It's all publicly accessible. Uh, and then in the east, when we talk about water damage and we talk a lot more about building envelope and, and uh, water and sort of ice snow issues, uh, ice and water shield, totally worth it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, three feet at the eaves, not enough, especially on a lower slope, go higher. Even if it's a 612, go higher. Uh, ice damming causes hundreds of millions of dollars a year worth of damage in Ontario alone. Um, and a lot of that could be mitigated, not potentially solved, but mitigated by additional ice and water shield, uh, as well, of course, of appropriate insulation and venting. And we all know that, you know, building authorities do their best, but they don't catch everything. Right. Uh, and then the, the final one on the flooding topic is backflow preventers. If uh, your municipality that you build in or, or your uh, local authority does not require them yet, you should be doing it anyway. It's a great sell to the homeowner. Uh, costs are fairly minimal, especially during construction. And uh, the peace of mind that that provides against the possibility of having a sewage backup in the basement is unbelievable. I mean, yeah. you know, your average residential sewer backup is is five figures. Yeah. Um, you know, and if you can 
prevent that forever but with a simple installation and time of construction it's, it's worth its weight in gold so yeah i think they mandated those on uh, new builds in london uh, recently they uh, or a few years ago they uh, they said that yeah it has or it was certain areas of town i think that were lower lying but yeah it's you, you certainly gotta, certainly some municipalities have um others have not yet i think one day we'll see that potentially in the national building code um but we're not there yet, but a, a great value-add service for any custom home builder. So. Uh, this one's a little bit out of left field, but uh, how much interest in seismic uh, earthquake protection are are, are, are you seeing uh, uh, in BC? Does, does, like, we haven't had the big one, but I mean, <laughs> they, a, lot of, a lot of geologists think it's coming. Um, um, how, how, well, I guess, actually, first of all, have you dealt with that? Like, have you gone to other countries or other places, maybe California, and seen that sort of thing? Uh, a lot of the guys I work with have done some uh, earthquake work in California. I personally haven't yet. Yeah. Um, uh, what I can say is that I do participate annually in a number of uh, tabletop training exercises with respect to earthquake response in the lower mainland. Yeah. Um, we help with planning for earthquake response with uh, with a lot of our large commercial customers in the lower mainland as well. Mm -hmm. So it's certainly something that's top of mind for us. We have a number of contingency plans in place. Um, you know, logistical plans in place should, you know, the big one or, or what's more likely a smaller one happen. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of forward thinking businesses with detailed emergency response plans and business continuity plans, that's definitely a major concern and a major topic for them uh, during their annual reviews every year. So that just that just occurred to me when we were talking about building design. I was like, I, you know, I, I know they've, they, they brought in some um, they brought in some more, especially on the obviously the taller, the high rise construction. Uh, they 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 put some. They've toughened that up in in BC, and they they continue to do it. But uh, anyways, I I I guess I, I think that's something that the BC authorities are fairly on top of. So uh, maybe if you just follow the code there, you'll be uh, you'll be doing the right thing. Yeah, credit where credits due. The the British Columbia Building Authority is, as far as seismic code is concerned, is one of the most advanced in the world. So, yeah, they're they're really making every effort to try and get in front of it as much as they can. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when a uh, contractor is getting involved with uh, disaster rebuilding, disaster remediation, I, I'm 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 wondering. Well, I guess I guess part of it is I'm wondering how the work gets parceled out. Uh, and I'm wondering what um, what authorities, what government agencies they might be uh, uh, expecting to deal with when they do that. So, I mean, the, the work's going to get parceled out by the customers, right? So the customers yeah. are our businesses and insurance companies and, and homeowners. So that's just like any other work that gets parceled out. Now, as far as uh, governing authorities that you're going to have to deal with, of course, you've got the obvious safety-related uh, bodies, uh, various ministries or departments of labor, depending on the province. And then you've got local building authorities. Um, of course, you're going to need a local business license. Uh, and really, especially if you're not normally in the disaster restoration business, you're going to want to call your insurance broker because uh, it's very possible that your liability insurance does not cover you doing uh, disaster restoration work. So uh, any small contractor or you know other type of contractor that's looking to diversify, certainly talking to your insurance broker uh, before you dive headfirst into something is probably wise. Wow, love love that point. That's that's for sure. So there's there's nothing like a um, <laughs> this is this is terrible, but I guess I know more about the Americans than I do about our own country. Uh, there's nothing like a FEMA uh, uh, agency or something like that that that, that is going to be in there uh, coordinating or or telling people 
what to do in Canada or uh, so that that role in Canada is filled by the provinces. So emergency man the emergency management office in each province is definitely going to play a role in a regional catastrophe. Um, and they're there they are in place mostly to help with the uh, the restoration of you know the area as a whole and the infrastructure. So things like roads and power and things like that. They're generally not going to get involved with specific homes or businesses. Uh, unless there's a, a public good issue, uh, you know, if there's only one grocery store in a town, then they're going to be very interested in how soon that grocery store is open. Yeah. Um, but generally speaking, they're they're more bigger picture, uh, as opposed to saying, you know, uh, you know, contractor Y, you're going to go work at Mr. and Mrs. Smith's house today. They're certainly not going to micromanage anything like that. Right. So. so the house has been damaged, let's say, by fire. Um, you're, uh, you, you, you've been asked to come in and, uh, and, and, and do a bunch of work to restore it. You've done that work, uh, to your satisfaction. Um, I, I guess that's now a building code that, that would be like a building code official that's going to sign off that this is ready to reoccupy and, and, and the place is safe again. Exactly. So, um, yeah, from a construction perspective, of course, you know, we need all the same permits that any custom home builder or home builder requires, um, from the remediation or cleanup side of things, uh, depending on the type of property and the extent of the damage, uh, oftentimes we'll work hand in hand with a third party environmental professional. So potentially we'll be doing things like air sampling if there's a mold issue or an asbestos issue. Uh, we'll be doing things like swab sampling for soot, char and ash to determine that our cleaning processes have been effective and you know to provide peace of mind to that customer that yes, indeed, it has been cleaned back to background or, or safe levels. Um, so definitely there's a, a role for third-party environmental professionals as is legally required, you know, specifically for asbestos or lead or other designated substances in Canada. So, yeah. What about that situation where there's flooding and there's gross water all over the place and, you know, now maybe it's subsided, but who knows what it's left. Is there, is there, is that this swabbing you're talking about or? Yeah, absolutely. So there's there's a variety of technology available that now, especially that can be done right on site and it can give us some um, gross bacteria counts, um, just, you know, almost immediate. Uh, and then further laboratory analysis, all the breakdown right to culturing if required to determine exactly what is present on those surfaces or hopefully not present after the cleaning process is done. Uh, and generally speaking, uh, even most municipalities now after an area wide flood, uh, are going to require a clean bill of health, uh, including testing from a third-party environmental official saying that it's been properly cleaned up before they'll issue a building permit. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's something that some proactive municipalities have, have already started doing. And I saw that for the first time this summer, where if you didn't have a sample saying it was clean, like a swab test from the, you know, the floor uh, saying that it met the standard, then you were not getting a building permit to put the building back together again. So no kidding. Yeah, yeah. So I, I expect to see that uh, spreading quickly across the country going forward. So, yeah, that that's a new one to me. So that's 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 interesting. Um, if you're a contractor who wants to be uh, uh, prepared to deal with uh, uh, these sorts of situations or to be prepared to help out uh, if there's a, a disaster relief needed in the community, are there uh, is there training certifications that you can recommend uh, uh, bodies? That, that, that prepare contractors to be able to do this kind of work? It definitely. So our industry is governed by a body called the IICRC. That's the Institute of Inspection, Cleaning, um, and Certification. 
and they provide a wide variety of, uh, you know, educational resources and courses and certifications and uh, related to all types of disaster related cleanup, for lack of a better term, as well as uh, maintenance cleaning and, uh, and facility maintenance, carpet cleaning, all of those things. So that's uh, really easy to find on the internet. Uh, I'm a member of the IICRC, of course, yeah. as are most of the people in our business. So that's uh, that's definitely the first place to look if uh, if you're interested in the business. Yeah, good to know. Good to know. Um, we touched uh, uh, very briefly. You mentioned liability. Um, what, what, what's that? What's that look like? Uh, are, are you going to be taking on a, a, a lot of extra insurance to be able to do this kind of work, or or is it possible you're already covered? Uh, it depends what kind of work you're doing, right? I mean, if you're a custom home builder, um, you know, and you're going to be doing some temporary repairs on some roofs, of course, I'm not your insurance broker, so this is just general advice. Uh, that's probably not that big of a deal. Um, but if you're typically a, uh, you know, a roofer and you're going to be doing flood cleanup, I would say you better talk to your insurance broker because that's probably not the insurance you bought. So, um, you know, definitely, if you're going to be doing something really out of the norm for you or, or uh, you know, what you've told your broker you normally do, then you need to talk to them before you do anything. Small mistakes in the restoration business can can have major consequences to people's health. And as we all know, that can be tremendously uh, expensive. So, yeah, I, I, I think that's a great point is, is don't don't assume that your that your coverage is, is, is OK, because when you're when you're doing something unusual like that, you can definitely if they can find an excuse. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's why we all have brokers, right? I mean, and they're generally speaking, they're great. Um, you know, and they've got great customer service departments. You just call them and talk to them and they'll explain what you're covered for and what you're not. But if you don't ask the question, then it's hard to have sympathy for you. Right. Yep. Absolutely. Jim, great discussion. Uh, really. Thank you very much. Uh, you, you've got such a wealth of knowledge in this area. Um, um, where can people, uh, where can people find out more about, uh, first on site if they're, if they're interested? Certainly. So our uh, website is www.firstonsite.ca or just Google us at first on site, the words, and, uh, you'll find us everywhere. We have branches right across Canada and the United States. So, uh, chances are we have a location near you and, and can get somebody with my skill set and my background out to have a conversation with you if you've got a problem. So fantastic. Fantastic. Listen, Jim Mandeville, thank you very much for joining me today. Great. Thanks, Patrick. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to The Hammer. You can find episodes online at CanadianContractor.com or subscribe on your favorite podcasting service. The Hammer is presented by Canadian Contractor Magazine. Contractor Magazine.